This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. This is Mike Yassim. I'm on the faculty here at the Wharton School, and I am talking with Cassandra Frangos, who is a consultant at Spencer Stewart, an executive search firm. And we're going to be talking today about a new book she has published called Crack the C-Suite Code, How Successful Leaders Make It to the Top. So, Cassandra, welcome to the dialogue. And just to jump right into it, uh, does everybody want to make it to the top? What do you think about your subtitle there. How many people really do want to make it to the top? Mm, thanks, Mike. That's a great question. I don't think that everybody wants to make it to the top, and this is not a concept that would span, uh, I think, every generation or every level in an organization. I think it's very specific to those that really set out a goal. As an example, one executive that I worked with at Cisco, the moment he was hired in his interview and he was a young uh, individual contributor at the point, he said, my dream is to be a CEO, and I'd love to be a CEO at Cisco. So he knew right away exactly what he wanted to achieve. Others, it evolves over time, and as they get closer to the top, they really want to make that contribution to the overall organization. So it's very varied in terms of those who know right away and those who say, hmm, that might be something I'd love to accomplish in the future, but it's certainly not a path that everybody has to follow. So, Cassandra, here's a quick observation. Uh, As you move into the C-suite, and certainly when you move into the corner office's chief executive in that C-suite, you're paid a good bit more. But by the time people reach middle or senior management levels, my observation is that that pay as a draw is less important than the opportunity to shape events, uh, drive a company in a different direction. What's your own observations on that? And I should add that for uh, quite some time, you were with Cisco, um, a huge technology company based in California. You were responsible for its global executive talent. You played a key role, as I recall, Cassandra, in the transition from the long-serving chief executive officer, John Chambers, to the new person who came in. So anyway, maybe drawing on the Cisco experience and your own observations with Spencer Stewart and beyond, what does draw somebody to seek that high office or the corner office or at least the C-suite? Sure. Yeah, I'll use John Chambers as an example since you just referenced him. John's ambition to reach the C-suite was really to make an impact on the world. Um, he's one that doesn't make small goals, so he really said, I want to transform the world through technology. So he's done things where he's transformed countries and cities uh, through technology. He's invented concepts uh, such as the Internet of Everything. So his ambition and his strategy was really for the C-suite to make a larger impact on society and the world. And then, of course, by steering a company, that was something he was very motivated by. And also he was motivated by improving people's lives. So he would say things to Cisco employee base, which was very true, I thought, firsthand, where he'd say, I'd want to make a difference in people's lives who work here. He thought of everybody at Cisco as family, and he would request to have a list every day of any critical family health situations. So if you had a mother, a father, a child, or somebody very close to you in your family who was critically ill or had some serious uh, disease where they really needed some health, 
help, he would call the CEO of Stanford Medical or the CEO of Mass General Hospital to say, I have an employee, their family needs help, I need to make a difference in their life. So that is, uh, I would say, such an inspiring CEO who wanted to make a difference in the world and in people's lives. I would say other examples, they're very much looking to make a broader impact to the company strategy, not just in their own division or their own functional area. They're really looking to make a broader impact. Thanks on that. And let me offer up what I often hear as uh, advice, so to speak, for people who are rising through the middle ranks and are heading maybe for the C-suite one day. I often hear from people who have been there, see what you think of this, that in aspiring to high office, uh, often that's a distant goal, it's a treacherous path, and there are just a lot of factors of luck or bad luck along the way. You've got to be prepared for all of the above. And therefore, I've often heard the statement, uh, just do your job really well. Do it uh, as well as you possibly can do it. Uh, don't look too far forward. Get what you've got to get done now, and that will help propel you in that longer direction. But the more short-term calling is to do an extremely good job wherever you are. What do you think? Absolutely. I think there's two answers to that. One is certainly always achieve results in the current job you're in. One CFO that I interviewed uh, for this book, they really talked about you always have to make sure you're getting results in your current job or you'll never be considered for the next job. So that's something that I think always stands the test of time, making sure you're performing really well. But I would say people who are really aspiring to the C-suite, they do have their eye on the next two or three moves, if you will, in their career. So they know they really would love to be a CFO. So they're always thinking about, well, what's the next experience I need to make sure that I'm preparing myself to be a great CFO or great CXO, depends on the position they're looking for, but also gaining the right skills and experience of where the future is going. So, for example, if you're in marketing, uh, some of the chief marketing officers that I discussed how they got to the C-suite, they talked about the trend of digital marketing where if they didn't learn that, they would have been really displaced. So they had to always keep thinking about what's the future and thinking two to three moves out as well. Cassandra, let's think for a minute about the uh, term you just used there, CXO, and it tends to be a, just a, a generic phrase for all the people who are in the C-suite, chief marketing officer, chief information officer, chief financial officer, general counsel, the top legal officer, and of course the chief uh, human resources officer as well. And as we look at what is now often termed the C-suite, give us a little bit of a geography of that territory. How many people are there? Uh, do they have offices near each other? How do they work with the CEO? What's up at that level? Yeah, I think it depends on the company, but generally speaking, the C-suite is really the top team that reports to the CEO. And a lot of times it depends on how the, the CEO wants to manage this. So, for example, when Cisco shifted from John Chambers to Chuck Robbins, Chuck really wanted to have a flatter organizational structure, and he wanted the C-suite to be larger. And that is becoming a bit of a trend in the C-suite, where a lot of CEOs are looking to have direct 
impact and direct relationships with the different levers of the business, such as marketing or product development or technology. Uh, so it's really shifted. Peter Capelli actually did a, a bit of a study on this where, let's say, 15, 20 years ago, it was six direct reports to the CEO. Now it's about 12 to 13 direct reports to the CEO. And that's a lot to manage for a new CEO as well because they're really trying to think through how they shape the strategy of the company, how they're moving the organization forward. But having actual direct access to the different functions also inspires the chief legal officer uh, along with their legal team where they were typically layered underneath maybe a chief operating officer. And the chief operating officer is actually um, decreasing in terms of the number of companies that have that position. That used to be something that a lot of executives aspired to, but I was looking at a study where only 30% of the S&P 500 have a chief operating officer right now. Um, before so we leave really, that, yeah, before we leave that, help us understand why it's a, a, a disappearing function or a disappearing title. Yeah, I think because of what many organizations are facing where they do need to have the direct levers on the business unit. So the CEO doesn't really want to layer in between him or herself and the business units or the different functions. Everybody configures the chief operating officer very different, um, but they really are looking to have more of that direct relationship, direct access, and not a management layer in between. Some companies who still have it sometimes use it as testing ground for succession. Um, so if there are a couple of candidates that might be great for CEO in the future, chief operating officer is a natural position where you could test out how does this person do with larger impact, larger responsibilities. So it is sometimes used still for succession purposes. Mm -hmm. Cassandra, we often hear the phrase, it's an aphorism, what got you here won't get you there. And as you've looked and worked with and sometimes even place people in these very high positions, what do you think it takes when it comes to management style and leadership methods to go from that rung or two below C-suite into the C-suite itself? I think there's it varies by company, but what I've seen is there's a few key themes. One is a more progressive leadership style where it's more about collaboration and innovation and not as much command and control. Um, so many leaders who grew up in a more command and control environment or that was their leadership style, they do have to leave that behind because uh, organizations are definitely becoming more dynamic, more dynamic org structures, uh, different ways of leading their teams. Many have virtual teams, dotted line reporting structures. So it's definitely becoming a lot more dynamic. Um, the other, I would say, is we've been talking about this for a long time, but emotional intelligence or really being attuned uh, to some of the complexities or psychology of people and the way that they are led and the way that they can really give their best to an organization. So that is one where I've often seen leaders derail if they don't have that, um, where they're just really not thinking through the hard and the soft side of management. And then the other is you cannot have too big of an ego uh, when you rise to the C-suite. Many of the executives I, I interviewed, I asked them, what, what took others off track as you observe them inside your organization? And 
a lot of them cited, well, there was this person who was really on the cusp of, of making the C-suite, but their ego is too big, and nobody could relate to them or nobody wanted to work with them because everything was about them. Uh, so that is often a derailer for many executives. And then there's a bit of a flip side of that. I've often heard this, see if this strikes you as something that's uh, resonant with what you hear, too, when you've interviewed all these people up in that C-suite, that it is essential to be able to think about the company or the organization, if it's not a company itself, as a whole. So you've got a particular responsibility, maybe manufacturing, or a particular product area, or your chief of marketing. But once you enter the C-suite, does does that, uh, I think it does, let me make it a, an affirmative here, it does call for them to think both of their function or their particular responsibility and the enterprise as a whole. Absolutely. Many talked about that, that that was something, it was an exciting shift for them once they reached the C-suite where they really could put on the hat of the entire company and their function was really secondary. And I always look at different executives that are presenting in in all hands or they're even talking to somebody in the press. What I often admire is when you really can't tell what function they're from. And that's a real good sign of a successful C-suite executive. I remember seeing our chief human resource officer and many said, I'm not sure what position she's in. Is she as part of product development because she can speak about engineering so well? Or is she in marketing because she really understands employment branding and the platform that digital marketing is bringing? Or she's really understanding the sales force? Um, and I think that's the ultimate compliment if they can't really tell what function you're in. And for our listeners and readers here, what advice would you have for a person who maybe is thinking this way? They are great at marketing. They've come up through that arm, and they're on the verge of going into the C-suite where they do have to be conversant in earnings per share and accounting methods and product manufacturing. And in anticipation of that need to be savvy about just about everything— What tips would you have for an aspiring, would-be CEO suite occupant? I think uh, putting your ego aside and actually taking a step back and learning from others who have that functional expertise. Uh, I think many often say, well, once I've reached a really senior level, I can't really take a step to the left or to the right to learn finance or to really understand what our CFO goes through to prepare prepare for an earnings call. I've seen many great executives actually say, I'm going to keep performing in my current role, but keep 20, 30% to the side of really learning the other functions. Spend a day in the life of the engineer or the sales leader or uh, a professor or whatever it might be for your industry. But that is something where Uh, If the ego is too high, as I mentioned earlier, they tend to not want to do that because it puts aside their expertise or it puts aside their status. Um, And there was, you know, many times where you can see executives doing that and just be so much more eloquent in the way they talk about the business. Mm -hmm. You know, you make a really interesting argument in the the new book, Crack the C-Suite Code, that life is not linear. There's no one path to the top. I like the phraseology. You distinguish four what you term core paths to the C-suite, what you call the tenured executive, the free agent, 
the leapfrog leader and the founder. So help us appreciate at least those four paths to the top, how they differ, and what what you'd recommend, again, for an aspiring person who's looking to get somewhere up the ladder uh, one day. Sure. So I think uh, these paths are very, uh, very common across industries and across functions. So I really tried to make it simple in terms of looking at what are the different paths and how did how did executives get there. So the tenured path I'll start with, that's a, a pretty straightforward one where you've grown up inside a company, you've spent a long, really a long tenured at the company, and you've moved up by different positions. And it could be that you've uh, zigzagged through different functions to get to a position, but really it's your whole career has been built by that company. And that's an example where you have to love the company. Uh, So if you are thinking of staying with your company and being that tenured executive that reaches the top, just know it requires some patience. Uh, Many of the executives I talked to who were on the tenured path said there were definitely moments where they thought about leaving and said, I'm never going to make it. Uh, to the top here, or I'm not sure I see a future here. And they were persistent in terms of making sure that their goals were met. They always had challenges. And many said that they were part of the same company, but the company evolved so much over time that they felt that they were part of three or four different companies. So you do have to love it. You absolutely have to love it if you're on that path. The second path of the free agent is more where you've reached a certain level in an organization and you really do want to make it to the top and there are either a few things that are in your way. One, you just don't see a path to the top. Um, Two, there could be someone who's really already in line to have the position you really are dreaming about. or there's just you've fallen out of love with the company. Uh, there's just you know ways that you don't see yourself there in the top of the organization. So that's where it's a critical decision point for many leaders where they really do have to think about, well, what's the right moment to make the switch and become a top executive at another company? And at Spencer Stewart, we spend a lot of time you know, helping executives do that because they are vulnerable. They are thinking about what's the next career move. Uh, and many were, you know, middle management and actually became top of top of the house uh, in a smaller organization. So we definitely see that a lot of larger company to smaller company, and they they really make the top position and end up very happy where they are directing the company strategy. Um, they've challenged themselves to learn a new culture, a new environment, uh, but it's certainly riskier than the tenured path. Um, the third one that I was really interested in, in studying was founders, uh, entrepreneurs who really were in larger companies, and for whatever reason, they just had this passion to start their own company. So, for example, Amy Chang is, is one where she was almost to the top at Google, and she had this idea that she was so passionate about, and she just felt that if she didn't pursue it, she would be leaving something on the table for herself and others. So she left Google and started a company that is really interesting, really cutting edge in terms of helping executives prepare for information and technology use for executives that they have to meet. 
So the company is actually called a company, <laughs> which can be tricky, but uh, that's an unmet need that she wanted to fill in the industry. Um, and other founders talked about it's certainly a risky path. Uh, you need to have some security or some financial backing if you're willing to do it because it's going to be uh, somewhat of a slow financial gain uh, because you're trying to get your idea proven. Uh, but that's that's one where it can pay off wildly or not be successful. So you have to be okay with failure as well on that path. And then the leapfrog path is one that's becoming a bit of a trend. BCG did a study of this when Cisco went through um, their CEO succession where I was curious, well, there's, this is a path that Chuck Robbins actually skipped a couple levels to reach the CEO job. And it's not common, but it is becoming a little bit more of a trend because it doesn't have to necessarily be if you're a direct report to the CEO, then you become CEO. It can actually happen a couple levels below the CEO to actually reach the top. I offer up a couple of thoughts, if you would, about the leapfrog leader. As You've seen some, I know. You've witnessed some. You've actually helped one take office. What is it? What does it take to be a, a leapfrogger? Yeah, I think this one is you don't have a lot of control over it uh, because it's not that you can set out to say, well, I'm going to skip over my boss. <laughs> I'm just going to, to you know, take a few steps and level. But what you can control is eagerness to uh, learn different parts of the business or also just show a lot of potential. Um, we measured the potential of the candidates for CEO and saw that Chuck Robbins had a lot of potential and we could see him in the top job. And it's a lot of uh, relationship building where you need to make sure that you've got great relationships with the board, which he did. Or the other part is if you are going to leapfrog over someone or a few levels, the followership has to be there. So you do want a whole organization to be behind you if you are going to be the leapfrog leader uh, because you need to have the support of employees or executives or customers to say, oh, absolutely, I can see this person in this job. And it just is very welcomed versus if you did skip a couple levels or one level and you didn't have a lot of followership, you've got a much tougher job ahead of you. Cassandra, we're getting close to the end of our time. I've got two final questions for you here. What uh, will get you into the C-suite won't keep you there, but equally, looking one more level up, same thing for moving from the C-suite up into the corner office. What are your thoughts on the kind of leadership or learning in that C-suite that's required to then have a shot at becoming the chief executive officer? Yeah, I think it's, being willing to reinvent yourself um, and being willing to reinvent the company. So really making sure that you are honoring some legacy and honoring some culture attributes um, or ways that the company works with customers, but you're also willing to reinvent uh, because one answer isn't the right answer for the next 10 years for a company. So that it takes a fair amount of risk. The other is just endurance. Uh, it's an incredibly difficult job, as you know. You've seen many executives in this role as CEO. It's a very tough job. So having the resilience 
and endurance to do the kind of high-pressure job um, that many CEOs have uh, is, is very important. And then what I mentioned earlier is, is having a real appreciation and understanding of the hard side of business and the softer side of business. So really looking at the numbers and results, but also caring for employees and customers and embracing a lot of the softer side of uh, the leadership role that you'd have as CEO. And Cassandra, final question here. For those, again, readers or listeners who are in their late 20s, a a lot of what you have just described, a lot of what's in your book, uh, Crack the C-Suite Code, is good wisdom and good sense for getting a good job done when you're working in an enterprise with a lot of other people, a lot of resources. Uh, Not so much the startup, uh, but more the established enterprise. What advice would you have for somebody who may not crack the C-suite itself, but they would like to have um, some success in a personal sense, but also make a difference in the company uh, that they are rising up in? What's your career guidance to them? I think it's always continuing to make a difference in whatever role you're in. Um, So something we we talked about earlier in this discussion is just keep making sure you're making results, making an impact in whatever job you are in, but also create relationships across the organization. So it's not just okay anymore to have a great relationship with your boss. You need to have great relationships with people who are – above you in the organization, your peers, uh, if you have people who work for you, um, that would be really important relationship. Because many executives who rise up, they found ways to just really embrace 360-degree relationships across the company, and it really helped them be successful. So I think that's something to not lose sight of because we can sometimes be so focused on just getting our job done and just putting our head down and doing the work, but actually doing the work now is having those relationships across levels, across the company, and make sure people recognize that you're making a difference. Cassandra, your book is called Crack the C-Suite Code, How Successful Leaders Make It to the Top, recently published by Wharton Digital Press. We thank you for joining the program. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.